All right, students, welcome back. This is Lecture 9 on Book Brasilia 2019, Book 3, Part 2, and Book 4, Part Only. Let's quickly review what we talked about yesterday. So remember that we met at the head of Book 3, Paris. He did not have armor on, and he jumped out to the front of the Trojan ranks. When he saw Menelaus, he reacted like a person who almost steps on a snake, uh, jumping back in ghastly horror. His brother, uh, Hector, saw him, had some choice words for him. Evil, cajoling... Better had you never been born, or rather died unmarried. All sorts of things that he said to Paris. Paris then, apparently uh, ashamed, or inspired by that which his brother said, decides to... Who recalls what he decides to do? He decides to issue something, yes. Yes, he decides to issue a one-on-one -on -one combat challenge to Menelaus. Winner, take Helen. Winner, take possessions that Paris... Uh, stole and took from Sparta along with Helen as well. And if the Achaeans specifically win this uh, duel, if, uh, if Menelaus, who people think is going to win this duel, wins it, then there will also be some degree of restitution given to the Achaeans for their ten or so years at Troy. They're, they've been there for almost ten years. It is the tenth year of ten. Alright, cool. We saw all of that. We then got to meet Helen. Helen got to talk to Priam, the king of Troy, as well as his number one advisor, Antinor. She then described the Achaeans to us. We remember hearing about Agamemnon being the most royal, Odysseus being like a ram amongst sheep, and we also heard a story from Antinor that Odysseus and Menelaus once came to Troy right before the Trojan War to demand Helen back. And actually Antinor considered killing Menelaus and Odysseus because that would, well, eliminate two very strong and very smart and very useful Achaeans from the Achaean fighting force. And would, uh, it's hard to say, but potentially that would have changed the course of the war because you do know that it is Odysseus who comes up with the stratagem for the Trojan horse. The Trojan horse, on which contemporary <coughs> viruses are named, is, uh, was a giant wooden horse that was sent into Troy that Achaeans came out of at night that, that allowed them to sack the city. And so Odysseus is directly responsible for destroying Troy. Will not happen during the Iliad, by the way. We also hear that Aias the Greater is rather large. A head and neck taller than all other people. So very easy to see him. Sort of like the Oakland Raiders backup quarterback right now if you follow football. Alright, we have some images here. And then I told you uh, a quick story about Odysseus and the fact that he did not want to go to Troy because he had heard a prophecy that in 20 years he will come back poorer than he left, having lost time and money. And so he pretended to be crazy but a man named Polymedes put his son, Telemachus, in front of him while he was salting the earth and using a scythe or driving a chariot with a horse and an ox on it, sort of crazy looking. Uh, he then stopped acting crazy, allowed his son to stay alive, did go to Troy, and then later would uh, accuse Polymedes of treachery, uh, hide gold underneath his tent, and then have him convicted of treason, and, and then he was stoned to death. And so... You mess with Odysseus, even if you're on the same side as him, will he forgive you? Probably not. He's a very tricky individual. In any case, let's move on now. So, Priam and Antinor. They go down from the Trojan Wall. They go down to the Trojan Plain. They cross Xanthos, the river of Troy, sometimes called Scamandros by mortals. And they meet Agamemnon and Odysseus in the middle of the battlefield. Neutral territory. They're going to set up an arena of sorts for Paris and Menelaus' one-on-one combat. Hector 
and Odysseus measure out the field. You might consider this an allegory or a metaphor for the fact that they both have measured intellects. Though I will say, Odysseus does seem to have the superior intellect. Hector will make passionate mistakes once the Trojans start to win against the Achaeans in the coming books. In fact, Hector will think that it is because of his own battle prowess that the Trojans are doing so well. Unfortunately, because he cannot see gods, he does not know that the only reason the Trojans will be winning during the time that they are winning is because the will of Zeus is behind them. The second Zeus's will turns from them, so will their uh, ability to defeat the Achaeans disappear. All right. The Trojans and the Achaeans, I love this moment, then both pray for the man who caused the war to die, which means they are not praying that the person on their side wins. They are both praying, both Trojans and Achaeans, that who dies? Yes? Who do you think? Paris of Troy, that's right. Why would it be the case that even the Trojans would want Paris to die? Well, think about it. What has Paris of Troy brought to Troy? Good things? Or Achaean's death and uh, put the potential destruction of his entire civilization? He is himself like a pathogen or a virus that has infected Troy and will someday kill it. And that is not simply, uh, that is not simply a simile. That is, uh, that is uh, a very close to a descriptive statement, if you think about viruses in a very particular way. In any case, the last note that we have on this slide is that Paris finally puts his armor on. He's finally taking things seriously. Not that it will help him very much against Menelaus. Menelaus far outclasses Paris as a fighter. Something to know about Paris, he's not much of a fighter. In fact, he's more of an archer. And there was sort of a stigma about being an archer. If you're an archer, you can be close or far to the person you're fighting against. Usually you're going to choose what? Far, of course, because it's safer. Well, because it's safer, it's not considered as courageous during these honor-bound times. And so, Paris is already not considered very courageous, and we've already seen how he reacts when he sees Menelaus stalking him like a lion stalks a boar, uh, according to Homer, anyway. Let's move forward. The fight begins. Now, Paris throws his spear first. This is how fighting works. Uh, at least one-on-one -on -one fighting. Generally, there will be general melee fighting. We'll see that in Book 5. There will be champions on chariots with two horses, sometimes three. Uh, the third horse is sometimes called trace horse, which is supposedly an anachronism, uh, moving throughout the battle. They'll sometimes shoot arrows, sometimes throw spears from these chariots, but usually they use the chariots like we use cars as transportation. All the common men, all the infantry, as it were, they fight on the ground, and much of the fighting will take place on the ground. Generally, the fighting takes this form. You use your long-range weapons first, you use your short-range weapons second. That's still how fighting occurs, by the way. And um, so, if you have a spear, or two spears, as they often do, you throw a spear. Then, if your spear doesn't go through the person's shield and their corslet and stab them and kill them, well then, you either pick up a rock and throw something else at them, which will uh, occasionally happen. You'll see rocks used effectively and ineffectively during the course of the Iliad, and you'll see a really funny rock throw uh, at the end of the Aeneid, uh, funny in a ghastly way, because the guy will die after he does that. His name is uh, Termus. In any case, after the projectiles are thrown, they take out the swords, and that's when the real business gets done. But this battle, this battle will go to a place that uh, we will not see any other battles go to, uh, because apparently this Paris, this Paris of Troy is quite beloved 
by a very particular goddess Aphrodite, which makes him quite the slippery fish to catch. And, well, in this case, we don't want to catch him. We would like to skewer him with a spear. So, Paris throws first. His throw does not even go through Menelaus' shield. For a spear cast to be effective, you must throw it through a person's shield, through their breastplate, which is called a corslet, through their tunic, which is just a <coughs> small cotton shirt, and into their heart. Uh, or you can throw it uh, somewhere where they are unprotected. We will see people get hit in the mouth. Uh, they'll lose tongues. We'll see people get hit in the face. We'll see people get hit in the back. And their viscera will come out. Uh, actually, there are contemporary doctors that have read Homer and say that it does appear that he was on a battlefield at some point because of how he dis his descriptions of how people die when they are struck by weapons seem to accord with our scientific accounts at this moment. And that makes a lot of sense because he lived during a very, very violent time. Even a few centuries after Homer, during the Athenian uh, supremacy, during their democracy, the thought of all young men, that would be essentially 15 and over, that they would fight in some sort of battle or war every spring. And so you can just imagine how different your life would be if, uh, and what, how different the things you would have seen would have been at these times. In any case, Paris throws first, weak throw, doesn't even go through the shield of Achilles. Menelaus then prays to Zeus for justice. Very smart, smart move by Menelaus. Unfortunately, we know that Zeus has turned against the Achaean, so he's not going to help Menelaus. But let's see how Menelaus does, even with the gods not on his side. He throws his spear. It not only smashes through every fold of Paris's shield, which is mostly leather, goes through Paris's corslet, is maybe a centimeter from going through his tunic and killing him. I think it actually goes through his tunic. And then this is what it says in your texts. He bends away. He bent away. How did Paris bend away with a spear through his shield and his corslet? I know, I, see, I usually do some sort of matrix move. But even then, the spear would like be right there. Uh, I don't know. He comes within an inch of his life, even less, actually. He gets knocked down. He's in a bad situation. What is Menelaus about to draw from his side and approach with? His sword. Yes, he draws it out. He comes over, stalking Paris. Paris, the fight's essentially already over. Menelaus is going to finish him off. Ha! Hits Paris right on his helmet. He's dead, right? Wrong! Menelaus' sword, out of nowhere, for the first time ever, splits into four pieces. It shatters. How do you kill this man? In any case, Menelaus isn't done. His spear didn't work, even though it looked like he killed Paris, but he hadn't. His sword didn't work, even though he slammed it over uh, Paris' head, and that would kill almost anybody if your sword didn't break for no reason. And then, so, uh, Paris has a helmet on. Uh, if you look in the back there, you can see my horsehair helmet. That's a... That's a typical looking sort of helmet for those uh, Keans and Trojans. Yeah, pretty majestic looking. Makes you look taller and therefore scarier, which is one of the reasons why we like to wear tall hats. We like to appear bigger than we are. Uh, sometimes smaller, it depends on the case, but if you're attempting to intimidate, you wear your hair bigger. In fact, you say, is that true of guys? I say, what do guys do with gel with their hair? They gel it up, they put it up, which makes them appear what? Taller and therefore bigger. Why do you think you do that? So that you appear more intimidating, very interestingly enough. 
Uh, but you can think about that. In any case, there's a strap underneath the helmet. They jostle around. They don't fit super well. You need that strap. It's a leather strap. So, Menelaus grabs Paris by the top of his helmet and starts to drag him so that he is choking him by his leather strap, which is extremely humiliating because, well, you know, he's strangling him to death in front of uh, every Achaean and Trojan who's fighting, and they're probably all watching, like how you would all be watching, like, yeah, that's great. Trojans are like, this is great. We get to go home, no more war. The Achaeans are like, this is great. We get to see Paris die, and we get to go home. This is a great day. A great day. Or, or is it a great day? Oh, no. Oh, who is this terrible creature that I keep showing you that is whisking Paris away all these times, my goodness, out of nowhere, and unseen by anybody, because the gods cannot be seen, except potentially by Achilles. He does seem to be able to see his mother. And Helen will show her ability to recognize gods. Actually, in this very book, Aphrodite will appear to her as a, an old servant, and Helen will recognize her because she, she's just a little bit too beautiful to be a servant. That will be, I think, the only time that we ever see a human notice a god disguised as a mortal. Just a quick note on the gods. They usually are invisible to humans. They are visible to us because we are reading about them. They often take the form of humans when they speak to them. So they will appear to you like your friend or someone that you know. In fact, we will see that happen today with Athena and Pandaros. In this instance... I have no idea what it would look like, but what does happen is that as Paris is about to be strangled to death, finally ending the Trojan War, Aphrodite shows up, picks him up, and whisks him away, not only to Troy, but to his own home, to his own bedchamber, to wait in his bed for his consort, Helen. Helen, who actually knows and has been told that Menelaus and uh, Paris are fighting for her right now. And so when she sees Paris back home and Menelaus still alive, she may well think that he is a profound, profound coward. And she may not very well want to return to her bedroom and her bed with Paris after such a cowardly action. Because perhaps, perhaps we interpret this as Aphrodite, because that is what the text says, literally speaking. Perhaps, if we were to think a little more literally, without Homer's poetic mind on this task, perhaps Paris somehow ran away. That said, in the text itself, he is definitely picked up by Aphrodite and put back in his room. Alright. Aphrodite, disguised, then tells Helen to go back to her husband. Helen recognizes her, as I said, and refuses at first. And then Aphrodite threatens to hate Helen now as she loves her. I want to read that to you just very quickly, because mostly I find uh, that exchange wonderful. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Let me use my old edition here, quickly turning back, and let me get to the last page. There we are. Let me just start at about 379. He turned and made again for his man, determined to kill him with a bronze spear. This is Menelaus. But Aphrodite caught up Paris easily, since she was divine, and wrapped him in a thick mist, and set him down again in his own perfumed bedchamber. 
She then went away to summon Helen and found her on the high tower with a cluster of Trojan women about her. She laid her hand upon the robe immortal and shook it and spoke to her, likening herself to an aged woman, a wool dresser, who when she was living in Lacedaemon, made beautiful things out of wool and loved her beyond all others. Apparently, this serving woman has followed Helen from Sparta to Troy. This is one of the things stolen from Menelaus, apparently. Uh, I say thing there uh, in the noun sense. Come with me. Aphrodite spoke to him. Come with me. Alexandros, Paris, sends for you to come to him. He is in his chamber now, in the bed with its circled pattern, shining in his raiment and his own beauty. You would not think that he came from fighting against a man. You would think he was going rather to a dance, or rested and had been dancing lately. So she spoke and troubled the spirit in Helen's bosom. She, uh, she recognized the round, sweet throat of the goddess and her desirable breasts and her eyes that were full of shining, she wondered. And she spoke a word and called her by name thus, Strange divinity, why are you still so stubborn to beguile me? Will you carry me further? Yet somewhere among cities fairly settled, she says, Are you going to send me somewhere else to be somebody's husband? Or, excuse me, wife? Or really probably she's thinking about a rude word that means the same thing as prostitute there. She's essentially saying that, Aphrodite, when will you stop prostituting me out? In Phrygia or in lovely Myonia? Is there some mortal man there also who is dear to you? Is it because Menelaus has beaten great Alexandros and wishes hateful even as I am to carry me homeward? Is it for this that you stand in your treachery now beside me? I love this line. This is a dangerous line to speak to Aphrodite. Go yourself and sit beside him. Abandon the God's way. Turn your feet back never again to the path of Olympus, but stay with him forever and suffer for him and look after him until he makes you his wedded wife or makes you his slave girl. Not I! I am not going to him. It would be too shameful. I will not serve his bed since the Trojan women hereafter would laugh at me all. And my heart even now is confused with sorrows. I love that. She says... Do you have some other person you're going to send me to? It's too shameful for me to go uh, uh, be with Paris at this point, given the fact that he is such a profound power. Why don't you, Aphrodite, go be his wife, serve his needs? That is a <coughs> grievous insult for a mortal to speak to an Olympian-class immortal goddess. Let's see how Aphrodite responds. Let's see if she says, okay. Then in anger, Aphrodite, the shining spoke to her, wretched girl! Do not tease me, lest in anger I forsake you and grow to hate you as much as I now terribly love you, lest I encompass you in hard hate, caught between both sides, Danaeans and Trojans alike, and you wretchedly perish. She says, how dare you talk to me that way? Don't talk to me that way, or I'll make everybody hate you in the same way that they now love you and pass you around like a Diet Coke uh, amongst thirsty students who only have three quarters and can't buy another one. How about that for a Homeric metaphor? Or simile. In any case... So she spoke, and Helen, daughter of Zeus, was frightened and went, striding herself about in a luminous, fun robe, silent, unseen by the Trojan women, and led by the gods. So, does Helen do as she is told by Aphrodite after Aphrodite chastises her rather uh, strongly? Answer is, yes, absolutely, cool. All right, Paris then talks to Helen. We don't have enough time for me to go through that quote there, but Helen essentially calls him a coward, and Paris says, uh, well, you know, the thing is, uh, uh, the Achaeans, Athena is helping them. And Athena is a very strong god. And Menelaus, how does Athena's help? 
Now here's something funny. As the reader, we know which gods are helping whom. We know that Athena, Hera, and Poseidon are all on the Achaean side. We know that Apollo, Ares, and Aphrodite are on the Trojan side. How many gods did we see down on the battlefield interfering in the one-on-one -on -one combat between Menelaus and Paris as readers? One! And that god was a Trojan god who helped the Trojans, or an Achaean god who helped the Achaeans? A Trojan one. So Paris is saying the opposite of what is true. Rather than him losing because a man with a superior goddess is helping him, he actually was had his life saved by a Trojan goddess, Aphrodite, uh, whisking him away. So his excuse is a lie. Uh, back down onto the battlefield. Agamemnon then declares Menelaus the winner, as you would expect. And, well, that's going to lead to some friction between Hera and Zeus, because if Menelaus is the winner, then the Achaeans have won, then Helen should go back to the Achaeans, then the war should be over, right? That sounds like a smart thing. Let's see what actually happens. Here's a beautiful picture of Iris the Rainbow Goddess. Sort of low resolution, but I like it. In any case, book four. We start on Olympus. Because this one-on-one -on -one combat ended in a way that left us unresolved, without resolution, Zeus now has to step in and make a decision. And so he starts to tease Hera. He says, well, you know, it looked pretty clear that Menelaus was winning that battle. We could spare a lot of people's lives. And you should hear the wisdom of Zeus in this. If we just ended this fight right now. But Hera. Hera stands firm against this resolution. More than anything, she wishes to destroy the Trojans. You might say, why? And I could say, well, there are several reasons. First reason, we know, is very vain. When a Trojan prince, Paris, had a chance to choose her as the fairest of them all, the most beautiful, he did not choose her. He chose Aphrodite. She hates him. Another story that you may not know is that there was once a very beautiful prince of the Trojans named Ganymede. In fact, we have a constellation named Ganymede to this day. Zeus found him to be a very striking young man, so he sent his eagle down to abduct Ganymede, to bring him up to Olympus to serve as cupbearer to the gods. This angered Hera because, well, her daughter Hebe, which means youth, had been the cupbearer. She was replaced by Ganymede. And the third reason is this. You'll learn in the Aeneid that Hera loves a people called the Carthaginians. The Carthaginians will be destroyed after three Punic Wars by the Romans. Can you guess who the ancestors of the Romans are? They are the Trojans, very much so. In fact, uh, even if you read A History of Britain by Geoffrey Monmouth, you'll see that the Britons trace their origin to Brutus, who was a Roman, and therefore back to the Trojans themselves. It seems to be the mark of a great people that they trace their roots back to Troy. And you might say, what about us? We are a great people, Mr. Schmidt. And I would say, well, we need to write some epic where we're traced back to Troy. Except for, I do notice that we do trace our roots back to Troy to some extent. Because, think of the University of Southern California. What is their mascot? The Trojans. The Trojans. And of course, Michigan State has the Spartans. And if you ever go to the South, you'll find Rome, Georgia, Athens, Georgia as well. It is very interesting. We do seem to trace, uh, we do have many, many foundations in this Greco-Roman world. 
in any case. Hera refuses to agree to peace. And so this is the agreement that Zeus and Hera will come to. There are three famous cities, at this time uh, centers of nation-states, that Hera loves. They are Mycenae, now called Mycenae, or Mycenae. That is where Agamemnon is king of, as well as parts of Argos, which is why the Achaeans are sometimes called the Argives. <coughs> the second city is Sparta. That is what Menelaus is king of. It is sometimes called Lacedaemon. It's epithet, shining Lacedaemon, meaning that it is very rich or poor. Think of the things that shine in this world. Gold, silver, bronze, rich or poor. Rich, very good, very good. And then the third city, I hope I have it written up here, is Argos itself. Argos itself is, uh, parts of it are ruled by Diomedes, who is one of the richest of the Achaeans. I believe he brings 80 ships. Uh, Nestor brings 90 ships. Idomeneus brings either 80 or 90 ships himself. And um, Agamemnon 100, there are several extraordinarily rich Pareto distribution looking Achaeans here. In any case, these are the cities that Hera loves most. If she gets to destroy Troy, which has always sacrificed to Zeus and he loves, one of the reasons the gods love mortals is that they will sacrifice food to them. Uh, the mortals then get to eat the food. The immortals then get to smell the food because they're not made of matter. And according to the Achaeans, neither are smells, which is a very interesting uh, take on things. If Hera gets to destroy Troy, which Zeus is now agreeing she will get to do, even though he will be working against her for the next several books, chapters, he gets to destroy one of her three cities. In fact, I will tell you something interesting. When we read the Aeneid, look out for these three cities, because you will notice that the Romans conquered one, two, three, all of them at some point. Meaning, if the Romans are the descendants of the Trojans, who eventually wins in the combat between the Achaeans and the Trojans, given enough time? The Trojans themselves. Though they will not win this particular conflict. Yes? Did the Persians ever have control of any of these cities, too? Because I know they got Athens at some point, but no one was there. Uh, so you're thinking about the Persians during the time of B.C., the Persian Wars, not like the, uh, yeah. the later peoples that would be there, like the Ottoman Turks. Um, that's a good question. I'd have to see exactly how far the Persians got. I did recently listen to lectures on Herodotus, and he talks about the Persian Wars in 490 and 480, which are about uh, 275 years after the construction of the Iliad. I'll have to see that. The Persians were the great enemies. They were the Trojan. Uh, if the Achaeans are the Greeks and the Trojans are the Near Eastern Asiatic rivals, 300 years later, the Athenians and the Spartans will be the Greeks and the Persians will be their great rivals. And there will be two major wars between them, which the, uh, the Athenians and the Spartans will win, just to destroy each other in a war against each other in the Peloponnesian War in the same century later. Technically, the Spartans beat the Athenians. All right. Let me pause this. And we're back. All right. Let's get down to business. If it is now the case that... Zeus has agreed that Hera gets to destroy Troy, then we need to start this battle back up. It can't be over. The war cannot be over. Many people are going to die now. But how are we going to start the war back up? There's been a truce called. Well, 
if a truce has been called, and a bunch of people are standing around, remember that Menelaus is still standing around in the middle of all these people. He's totally vulnerable. If you were, say, an archer on the Trojan side, who wanted glory for yourself, without thinking about the dishonorable repercussions of shooting an unarmed person during a truce, you might want to take a pot shot at Menelaus. Because then, forever afterwards, you would be the man who killed Menelaus. And, well, if you kill Menelaus, he's the husband of Helen. There might not be any reason for all these Achaeans to stay on at Troy if the husband of Helen, who was wronged by the Trojans, is dead. Mm, that's, uh, I suppose that's some sort of reasoning. I wouldn't exactly call it great reasoning or sharp. But Athena... You see her in her capacity as goddess of wisdom here, but goddess of wisdom in a negative way. If you are smart, Athena helps you. But if you are unintelligent, Athena hurts you. Sort of like a, uh, an unformed mind is a very dangerous thing. It's like, it's like a sword. If you're trained with the sword, it's dangerous for others. If you're <coughs> untrained with the sword, it's dangerous for you. And so Athena goes down to the battlefield on Hera's orders to stir up some strife. She takes the form of Laodicus, a friend of a man named Pandaros. Pandaros is a Lycan and an extremely talented archer. In fact, we'll see him injure two major Achaeans in the very next book. He will be quite the thorn in the side of the Achaeans. She makes a nasty little suggestion to this Pandaros. She says, and it literally describes him as having a fool heart. She says, Tandaros, if you take this shot now on unarmed Menelaus, this is your best shot ever of killing A, Menelaus, and B, winning eternal glory. And she persuades him. He thinks nothing of the consequences. He thinks nothing of the lives that will end. And this is a picture of him taking aim at Menelaus, who, if you really look closely, you can see... Uh, just sort of talking to Agamemnon, and then some creepy-looking dude in the back there, which is maybe Athena, going, maybe that's his conscience. In any case, he notches the arrow, he shoots it, he lets it fly, it hits Menelaus in the pelvis, right beneath his war belt, which makes blood run down the insides of his legs, which is horrifying to everybody who sees, in particular, his brother Agamemnon, who starts... Uh, not to cry, but freaks out. He says, oh, Menelaus, what has happened? These Trojans, they're so terrible, I can't believe that they deceive us in this way. What will people say of me? That I had you go do one-on-one -on -one combat with Menelaus, and, or excuse me, with Paris, and then, and then you died. What will people think of me? Agamemnon turns it totally around. He seems to show some affection, some sorrow for his brother, whom he thinks has been killed because of the gushing blood going down his legs. But you can just imagine how, uh, 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 you know, grotesque that would look. But then he switches gears. He's worried about his own reputation, his own Kleos. And in fact, in book... Uh, actually, it was... Uh, no, is it the end of book four here? It is in these couple books. I can find the exact quote. That Agamemnon goes to muster the troops. And he actually runs into Diomedes and his lieutenant Stenelus, who are both sons of two famous men, Capaneus and Tidius, who were two of the seven kings at Thebes. 
There were two major wars during the classical heroic age. The War of Thebes, which we'll hear about quite a bit, and the Trojan War. These are the two great mythological wars. Agamemnon will say to Diomedes and to Sthenelus that they are not the men their fathers were. And Sthenelus will try and respond. But Diomedes will respond and cut him off and say, Don't worry about talking to Agamemnon, for if we fail, it's his name that's on the line. And so, how people speak of you, what they think of you, that is your claim to immortality for Homeric heroes. So when Agamemnon gets upset that maybe people will say bad things about him after his brother dies, that is a legitimate thing to worry about, but also a selfish thing. Next time we talk, we'll get to book five.